The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of December 3rd, 2018. On this week's show, Lindsey Gibbs of Think Progress and the Burn It All Down podcast will join us to discuss the Kansas City Chiefs' decision to cut star running back Kareem Hunt after TMZ released a video of Hunt pushing and kicking a woman. The New York Times' Mark Tracy will also be here to talk about Alabama's crazy come-from-behind win over Georgia in the SEC title game, where they were led by one-time starter and now backup quarterback Jalen Hurts. And Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated will tell us what we need to know about the U.S. men's national soccer team's new head coach, Greg Berhalter, as well as the tortured process that led to Berhalter's hiring. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Stefan, should we uh, talk about our holiday plans? Uh, we could do that. Yeah. Or first, should we talk about the, f- the, the fact that the uh, Seattle Seahawks had a scorigami again over the weekend? Scorigamied, I think is they the verb. They over the weekend, uh, 43 to 16. I was surprised that that was a scorigami. Extending Pete Carroll's streak of scorigamis to nine seasons. Nine seasons in a row? He's the Cal Ripken of scorigami. That's amazing. That is kind of crazy. Congratulations. Two two listeners pointed that out to me on Twitter. Uh, It's good that you have a reputation. I have a brand. So holiday plans. Back to that. So we haven't done a Colin show for a while. We're going to do another one for either our Christmas or New Year's show. We haven't discussed it. We'll figure it out. But one of those. Um, and I don't think we should put any sort of parameters on the questions. Conundrums are great. If you uh, want to ask us uh, a question about uh, playing basketball underwater, that's cool. If you would just want to ask us anything else random, that's fine too. Uh, as long as it's a good and fun question to answer on a sports podcast. There'll be you- a lot of dunking in basketball underwater. Be kind of hard to score otherwise, don't you think? <laughs> Depends on if you weight the basketball, but um, perhaps we don't want to give away the milk for free here, Stefan. True. Um, okay, so the phone number is 77 hang up 10. Um, and you should call us and ask your question, preferably do it on a phone line that does not sound like you're playing basketball underwater. Um, ask us anything that you want us to answer. We want calls from men and from women, and we want them on topics that are reasonably evergreen, so ones that we can answer in a couple of weeks. Again, the phone number is 77-HANG-UP-10. We look forward to your calls. How heavy do you think the basketball would have to be underwater? There's got to be a, a weight where the basketball won't float at all. <laughs> if we have any physicists out there who want to answer that question, I feel like I'm not really prepared to answer that one off the cuff. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. On Friday afternoon, the website TMZ, which in 2014 had been the first to publish the video of the Baltimore Ravens' Ray Rice, 
dragging his then-fiancé out of an elevator unconscious, released footage of Kansas City Chiefs running back Kareem Hunt shoving and then kicking a woman outside his apartment in a Cleveland hotel. Later in the day, the Chiefs released the 23-year-old Hunt, saying that he lied to the team about the incident. Joining us now in our D.C. studio is Lindsay Gibbs of Think Progress. She's also one of the hosts of the podcast Burn It All Down. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Lindsay, the fact that Hunt was involved in, quote, off-season incidents, plural, and I hate uh, to use the word incident, but... Uh, sometimes no other word <laughs> yeah. fits. Um, the fact that he was involved in these incidents has been known for a while. Can you explain the timeline here? So this um, scene that we saw depicted in the video happened in February, right? Yeah, it happened in February. And at the time, it was known that there was a fight with a woman that uh, he had presumably just met that night, you know, not an ongoing relationship. The police report and the reporting from Cleveland reporters did say that he had pushed and shoved her. There was no mention of a kick, but it pretty quickly faded into the background. Uh, He was also in trouble for another incident a few months later where he had punched a man at while he was out, I believe, at a bar. And so it was kind of all wrapped into all field character issues. During training camp, the Chiefs talked about how they were really investing in him as a man and trying to teach him to be a better person. But the domestic violence and the assault of a woman pretty much faded into the background until this video came out. It's kind of remarkable that it did fade into the background and that the Chiefs and the NFL both decided to let it fade into the background. The NFL has tremendous latitude to punish, and it has done that in the past. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott got suspended for six games. There was no video. Josh Brown of the New York Giants initially was suspended for one game before the league was hit with a lot of outrage and extended that suspension further. So clearly there were decisions made, choices made by the league, and ultimately that is what is just makes the league look so terrible. Let's stipulate that domestic violence of any sort is outrageous and that Kareem Hunt should be excoriated and it, and should be suspended. There should be some action taken against him. But the process by which this wasn't addressed or the way it was addressed is what's really troubling for the NFL here. It's absolutely staggering. I mean, the fact that it seems that everyone knew that there was a camera recording this at this hotel and the the NFL apparently asked for it was told they couldn't have it the Cleveland Police Department which this is really staggering to me asked didn't even go after it because it was a misdemeanor and not a felony and they don't get videos for misdemeanors which is just mind-boggling. And so this video has just been out there. The Chiefs apparently were told to stop looking for it because the NFL was looking for it. Furthermore, the NFL never talked to Kareem Hunt himself because they said the Chiefs talked to him. Since the Chiefs talked to him, that was fine. That was enough information. So there were so many missteps along the way. And every time this comes up with the NFL and with teams, there are missteps. There are wrongdoings. Nobody can get this right to a degree that is baffling. I think it's easier, at least for me, to understand where the NFL went wrong here than what the actual right process would have been or should be because Amy Trask was on CBS, uh, did a segment on their NFL pregame show, 
and a segment that was very widely praised, like Amy Trask should be the commissioner. Yeah. Amy Trask Former is- Former Oakland Raiders yeah. president, right? Yeah, and talking about what she would have done if she were um, you know, the team president of, of the Chiefs and how she would have proceeded. And she said, a thing that teams need to think about doing now is pursuing these videos in the way that TMZ does. She didn't say it explicitly, but my sense of what she was saying is like, Maybe try to pay someone who works at the hotel to get it, like go through some back door, like the way that a tabloid publication should. And I found that like actually extremely troubling, the idea that teams should be going out and engaging in behavior that we would expect from the likes of a a TMZ um, and trying to get somebody to give them uh, a video kind of uh, out the back door or something. Well, I, I see this as like a failure of the criminal justice system. As Lindsay said, the Cleveland police not getting this video. I see it as a failure of, as you said, the NFL being like, oh, we don't need to talk to Kareem Hunt because the Chiefs did. But oh, the Chiefs don't need to look for the video because the NFL did. Like there's an extreme lack of coherence there. But I don't know if I actually blame the NFL for not getting this video. Well, except that you're assuming that the only way to get the video is to pay an employee of the hotel who may have access to it. The NFL, let's not forget, employs former cops, former FBI agents. They have an entire, they created a a panel on domestic violence headed by a former prosecutor. It's not as if there are, you know, there are lots of ways to get information in society without having to pay for it. Um, That's what law enforcement, that's what private investigators do every day. And the NFL is armed with private investigators. Well, I mean, maybe maybe I'm naive, but I believed the NFL when they said they tried to get the video from the hotel and weren't able to yeah, get it. Yeah, I don't think that the, do you think that the I, NFL Lindsay actually didn't want to see if there were video or see the video once they knew there was video? I think they they believed Cream Hunt and didn't think that there was anything on the video and that's what's really bothersome to me. I mean, these teams have private security that they hire to watch their their most troubled players, right? These teams pay for so much stuff that it, to babysit some of these mm-hmm. players and to make sure that they stay safe and are, you know, taking care of this the money of the team and everything like that. That honestly, I know what you're saying, Josh, but paying for a video, paying a little under the table money for a video that might shine some light on an instant doesn't isn't the most uh, isn't that appalling of a notion. I mean, the NFL spent how many million dollars investigating whether Tom Brady, you know, whether a Tom Brady flunky lets him air out of a football. Well, that's definitely true. (laughs) There's not an argument there that the NFL took Deflategate more seriously than they took this. But I guess another way to look at it is the behavior that you guys seem to be endorsing here that you would want the NFL to undertake, I feel like you would think was troubling in other contexts where a, a private employer would take it upon itself to act as this extrajudicial arm. Oh, I'm not suggesting that they should. I'm suggesting that it's within their power and ability, and it shouldn't surprise anybody if an organization like the NFL did operate that way when it came to security and investigations. I think the, the bigger issue is the way the NFL and its executives think. I mean, go back to August um, during training camp when the CEO of the Kansas City Chiefs, Clark Hunt, who knew that there were issues with Kareem Hunt, no relation. And he stood up in front of the media and basically made the argument that boys will be boys. He's young. We're working with him. There's been some stuff. 
you know, quote, they're not always going to make the best decisions, but we have a strong support system, both with the coaching staff and also with our player development department that works with young guys and talks to them about the situation they want to, that they want to be in. Young guys, young men, you know, it doesn't really give them much agency for being mature adults who are, in addition to being paid very well, like Kareem Hunt was, is unlike other players in the NFL. I mean, this is a future superstar, current superstar, um, who's going to make money. Um, and to sort of have that paternalistic approach toward your employees is very reflective of how the NFL operates. And let's not forget that the biggest problem here is that nobody seems to care unless there is a video, which is why we're talking right. so much about the video and why the p- procurement of the video isn't where I can really get outraged because why don't we care when we hear about it in reports? Like, why isn't it real until there's a surveillance video or, in Greg Hardy's case, you know, these um, photo photographs? Or in Reuben Foster's case, right? an arrest, two, three. Just last week, before the Cream Hunt video uh, came out, I wrote a piece called NFL Groundhog Day, which was about the way yeah. the NFL had mishandled domestic violence allegation after dom- domestic violence allegation in the four years since Ray Rice. That was about the Reuben Foster situation. And now here we are just two days later. Then, uh, And remind you, this was one day before the six-year anniversary of when Javon Belcher, the, who was with the Kansas City Chiefs, mm-hmm. murdered his pregnant girlfriend, uh, Cassandra Perkins, and then, of course, committed suicide in the parking lot. So this has been an ongoing problem. And the Kansas City Chiefs have dealt with this more than anyone. And the organization still, as you as you just mentioned, they continue to make excuses. They continue to say this boys will be boys mentality. So I think in general, that is exactly correct. I think there's one kind of complicating factor in this case, which is that, as you mentioned, the police report didn't mention that he kicked the woman. And as Lisa Salter said in her interview with Hunt, that was the moment in the video that actually stood out. Let's listen to Salter's and then Hunt's response. When I watched the videos, the lasting impression for me was the kick. You kicking a woman while she was on the ground. You kicking a woman, period. How do you explain that? You can't really explain it. Uh, the video shows it. I was in the wrong, and I'm not that type of person. I, I'm really disappointed and embarrassed for myself and for my family, and I really am taking actions to learn from this and do everything possible to you know, become a better man. Sort of echoing the comments that Clark Hunt made, right? He's repeating back what's been told to him, right, Stefan? I think so. Um, And maybe he's sincere. Maybe Kareem Hunt has learned from this. Maybe he did make a mistake. And he's entitled to, to, to getting counseling and rehabilitating himself and his reputation and his behavior and performing some sort of restitution to, to, you know, to, to achieve that. Um, That's almost beside the point here. The point is when the NFL and the Kansas City Chiefs found out that, you know, I'm not sure that that the kicking isn't also sort of parsing this too far. The police report, the 911 call, the woman said, he shoved me, he pushed me, he took my phone, he has my phone. I'm not sure we need much more. You know, these investigators can get more details. 
if the NFL system was working the way it seemed to be set out to work with this no tolerance, six games minimum, a few mitigating circumstances that can go less than six games, which is the system that was set out after Ray Rice, then presumably Kareem Hunt would have already been punished, would have already been been dealt with this, and we could have been moving on. I think where the outrage comes is it feels like the NFL and the Chiefs and everyone are trying to cover this stuff up, are trying to push it under the rug. And that's, to me, the worst part. It doesn't do the, it, it, to use a general term, the alleged abusers, or in this case, you know, we've seen a video, any favors either. You know, if he had already been punished, had already been put through some sort of system, had already give, been given a chance to start the rehabilitation process and to take ownership for what he's done, then he doesn't become this TMZ national outrage Ray Rice redux person. The problem, of course, is that from the NFL's perspective is that they have failed in almost every attempt to to uh, to to impose these punishments. Right. They're going to end up in court. It's going to get reversed. It's happened over and over again. And Roger Goodell, the commissioner, has looked like an impotent ruler. Yeah, I mean, what happens if they punish him based on this report with no video and Hunt apparently lied about what happened? So it's his word against this woman's word. Maybe the league was saying, oh, well, we don't want to have to go to court and, and look like idiots again. I think the issue that you guys have identified that's correct is just the seeming lack of interest yeah. And finding out, you know, it's obviously different being suspended from your workplace versus like being sent to prison. But it wasn't there wasn't like clear and unambiguous evidence before um, this video came out. It wasn't like Kareem Hunt admitted to what he had done. And that, I think, is also interesting that like you get the likes of Tony Dungy, the like football man, like uh, head coach type who says the real problem here isn't what. Kareem Hunt did. It's that he lied, and that's why mm-hmm. that's why I would never have him on my uh, my team again because he like looked at the coach and he lied. Like that is the real NFL mentality. That's very true, and that's the most disturbing. And even Kareem Hunt himself, when he was talking about seeing the video, he said, "I didn't realize how bad it was until I saw the video. I didn't realize what I'd done until I saw the video." And then he kept saying, "That's not me. I'm not that man." It's this distancing from the actions that everyone seems to be comfortable with. And that's a continuous problem in the NFL. It's a continuous problem in society. And let's not forget that the reason this is such a big deal, the reason why we need to be able to figure this out is because 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner. You know, one in four women are have been victims of severe physical violence and more than half of female homicide victims killed are killed in connection with inner partner violence. And I just like to continue to bring up those statistics to say, like, the, the reason this needs to be taken seriously is because it's not being and because at some point somebody has to stop the cycle. And the NFL said it was going to get its house in order and it hasn't. So the Chiefs also have Tyree Kill on their roster, who choked his pregnant girlfriend when he was in college at Oklahoma State. The Chiefs drafted him with, I believe, full knowledge of that incident. Sam Mellinger wrote a column for the Kansas City paper. This was in connection to Luke Heimlich, which we've also talked about, and the idea that the Royals should or should not give Luke Heimlich a chance. He had confessed to uh, molesting his young relative. And there was a big debate about that. And Mellinger said, I've actually changed my mind on Hill because I think this is 
a guy who's gotten his life in order, and I'm glad that the Chiefs gave him a chance. Now, how a, a newspaper columnist can have the confidence that that is correct, I have no idea. But the point here is that there seems to be this philosophy that Ray Rice, Kareem Hunt, um, whoever, um, the the team that currently employs that player, it seems like there is now the feeling that, okay, we have to cut that player. But if they did it like five minutes before they were employed by us or like six months or two years, then it's fine. Like that was the disturbing thing about the Ruben Foster situation. Not that he was given another chance. That doesn't bother me. It's the idea that he was um, what he was arrested for domestic abuse, and it seemed like within like a day, the uh, Washington signed him. So mm-hmm. that that I think is was the troubling part, um, not the fact. And if Kareem Hunt gets another chance with the team down the road, I I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, I'm all for second chances and you know letting people go through this process. I thought. Kareem Hunt, I think a lot of people thought he didn't do himself any favors in the Lisa Salters interview. He didn't seem incredibly contrite or upset. I was actually thought I was glad he didn't make excuses. <laughs> My bar might be very low, but I think there should be a low bar. I mean, he's yeah. not like somebody no. who's um, you know, a professional speaker. Right. Like he no. he we shouldn't judge him like he is. No, I know. And I thought it was a live interview, which I thought was a good thing by ESPN's call. Lisa Salters was the right person. It was a completely the opposite of the redemption narrative they gave Greg Hardy. I don't know if you remember a few years ago where Adam Schefter, it was this, you know, showy interview with Greg Hardy about how much he had changed. And it was edited and and all the stuff in post-production, whereas this was a live 11-minute one-on-one interview between Lisa Salters and Kareem Hunt. So I thought that was the right way to do it if you're going to do that. But I I agree. It's just so hard to know when accountability comes in. Whether you like it or not, this comes down to the athlete's ability. Josh Brown, the kicker for the Giants, was expendable because there are a lot of kickers that can do what he could do. Reuben Foster is really a middling linebacker by ratings at this point, so that's why the Washington team's decision to immediately sign him (laughs) seemed so ridiculous. Kareem Hunt has a potential, you know, based on his first couple of years in the league, to be to put up huge Well, he already numbers. is a great player. He and, already is a great player. And everyone uh, who said, and rightly so, that we shouldn't congratulate the Chiefs for, for cutting him, I, I think that's a totally fair point. I also think we would be remiss not to recognize the fact that this wouldn't have happened uh, maybe before Ray Rice, the, a team cutting a star player who's like under team control on like a really good contract and a team that is one of the favorites to make the Super Bowl. Like, I'm not saying we should congratulate the Chiefs. I'm saying we should recognize the fact. And I don't even know if you want to call it progress. It's just different. Like that would never have happened a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's it's slight change. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say we're talking about talent and a talent always wins out, except, of course, in the case of Colin Kaepernick, which is hanging over all of this yes. stuff. And I think did make the Reuben Foster decision by the Washington NFL team that much more egregious because they could probably use a quarterback. <laughs> Lindsay Gibbs writes for Think Progress. You can also check her out on the great podcast, Burn It All Down. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to college football, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to talk to a real-life, genuine Alabama fan. Our colleague Molly Olmstead of Slate will tell us what it's like to root for a team that never loses. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. In college football's national championship game in January, Alabama fell behind Georgia 20-7 to in the second half before backup quarterback Tua Tagovailoa, who had come in in relief of starter Jalen Hurts, led the Crimson Tide to a stunning 26-23 overtime victory. On Saturday in Atlanta, Alabama executed the exact same comeback with the exact same quarterbacks against the exact same opponent, except those quarterbacks took on exact opposite roles. This time, the Tide were down 28-21 to when Hertz came on in relief of an injured Tagovailoa, throwing for one touchdown and running for another, the latter with a minute remaining, to give Alabama a 35-28 to victory, clinching a playoff spot for the Tide and knocking Georgia out of the playoff. Joining us now is Mark Tracy, who covered the game for the New York Times. Hey, Mark. Hey. Uh, before we get to how Hertz is an incredible example for kids out there. Let's talk about the uh, game itself. Having uh, watched the national championship game, did you feel like this was literally the exact same script or were there kind of crucial differences between the two games beyond the whole like quarterback switcheroo thing? Yeah, no, it was it, it, it was bizarre, the resonances. Um, And we all kind of sensed it a little bit. I remember at one point, you know, Tagovailoa, the the really bad injury, the one I believe, the bad injury that actually caused him to undergo surgery on Sunday, uh, with Saban saying he'll be back in two weeks, um, occurred in the first half. Um, really, I think on the first drive, you know, he went into the injury tent after the first drive, after he was sacked, which is when the injury, a sprained ankle or an ankle thing, ostensibly happened, and then throwing an interception, just his third of the year. Um, so he was struggling you know, much as Jalen Hurts was struggling in the first half of the championship game in January, Tagovailoa was struggling throughout the first half of the game last Saturday. Um, and, you know, then he get, comes off the field. It turned out it was because a player, a defensive player had stepped on his foot and Hurts comes in. And, I, you know, I turned to a colleague in the press box and said, could this really happen? And, and it really did happen. You know, then Hurts came in and led Alabama to a come from behind victory just as in January. It was it was it was remarkable. Well, the other thing that was similar is that Georgia played really oh, really really well. Them. Completely outplayed them. Georgia outplayed Alabama and to spin it forward did not make it into the college yeah. football playoffs. They were uh, passed by Oklahoma. Georgia lost twice the regulars during the regular season, once to Josh's LSU. They got blown out 36 to 16 and now to Alabama. Um, you know, playoffs, schmayoffs, it's impossible to sort of really come to a good decision here. But based on what you saw, Mark, yeah. and what we all saw, I mean, it looked like they, yeah. they, they deserve to be to have another yeah. crack at Alabama. 
I try not to make prognostications in terms of my personal football interpretations because I don't consider myself an expert in football. Um, I do, or I did, I should say, consider myself an expert in how the College Football Playoff Selection Committee operates because I have covered them for five years. Um, and this, to me, was shaping up, and I said this a week ago, um, you know, after the kind of rivalry week games, I said that if Georgia played Alabama close but lost, it'd be hard to justify dropping them. Um, they did justify it. And I mean, you know, the committee, they sent out weird tea leaves. You know, they said that among Georgia, which had two losses and was not a conference champion, but obviously looked great. Um, Oklahoma, which was a conference champion and, and beat Texas in the Big 12 title game. Um, and Ohio State, which also was a one-loss conference champion, albeit one that you know, did not look as good as even those other two teams throughout the year, I would say, and had the worst loss of the three to Purdue. Um, you know, they said, last year they said they picked Alabama, which was not a conference champion, over Ohio State, which was, because they determined that Alabama was, quote, unequivocally better than Ohio State. This year they said that of those three teams, n- none of them were unequivocally better, so then they deferred to kind of protocol they've been given, and one of those is conference championships, so that put Oklahoma above Georgia. But of course, Ohio State was not put above Georgia, um, which would suggest that they did feel that Georgia and, by extension, Oklahoma were unequivocally better than Ohio State. It it seemed a little muddled. And, I mean, you know, I I do feel like the committee is insulated from political pressures, um, but certainly one could imagine there being political pressure exerted at least on other people uh, not to lock out three of the five major conference champions, which is what would have happened had Georgia been included. But aren't these ex post facto explanations mark because it's well, it, it, it's not like the, it's not like the committee was unanimous that right. Oklahoma should be in over Correct. Georgia and so then they send out the committee chairman to explain it as if there was some sort of coherent explanation when the different voters might have had different reasons for it and you you said the word deserving Stefan, I mean, nobody deserves right. nobody deserves anything I mean if Georgia right. um, had not lost to LSU and they look like garbage in that game. Right. Like if, if they had not lost to LSU and they had lost to Alabama in the conference championship game, they would have made it in Correct. over Oklahoma and uh, over Ohio State. And so, you know, I think it was Chris Fowler who actually said this, which I found compelling, which was at a certain point, you know, looking good and people thinking you're one of the best teams can only go so far. You have to actually have the results to back that up. Especially like, with the small sample size that is college football. Right. Yeah, and they had they had their chance against Alabama. And if just for the sake of entertainment, I mean, this is all for entertainment, just like put another team in there. Like, that doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily bother me. But it, it was surprising to me. I... I I think you're clearly you know, bothered, Mark. Like you, you can you barely keeping it together because you're bothered, so angry. I'm bothered by how wrong I was, <laughs> and I feel. And, and obviously, the the natural thing to say is, "Well, Mark, you were wrong. Your judgment was poor." <laughs> but of course, I want to blame the committee uh, for for making my judgment look poor. But yes, I was I was wrong, but not wrong. It's not like I I personally think Georgia is better than Oklahoma. I would never claim to have that kind of expertise. I felt that the committee would see things that way. All right, let's get back to the really important story here, and. Is whether Jalen Hurts is a hero for not transferring after he was replaced as the starting quarterback at Alabama. After the game, Kirk Herbstreet tweeted, 
And when my voice goes up, that's because he wrote in all caps. <laughs> what an incredible example for kids out there that think leaving for greener pastures after seeing first sign of adversity is the answer. Exclamation point, exclamation point. Jalen Hurts has shown amazing fortitude all year and has been an amazing leader and supporter of his teammates. And now he saves his team's dreams. Let's also listen to what Nick Saban had to say about Hertz after the game. Well, because he's done so much for the program, and it's unprecedented for a guy to win 26 games and then not be the quarterback anymore. And for him to handle that as he has, tremendous character, tremendous class. And then we played him through the year, so if this ever happened, he would have an opportunity, hopefully, to do well. Uh, And he certainly took advantage. I told him when he went in today, I said, this is your time, buddy. And he did it. Do you think that Saban used the word buddy? Uh, doesn't seem like a buddy guy to me. Does, does he seem like that to you? No, he doesn't seem like a buddy guy to me. Well, yeah. uh, Mark, how did you feel about how that conversation played out about Hertz? I kind after of wish we could separate the, the, the two parts of it. You know, if you want to praise Hertz for being, you know, a good teammate, you know, he didn't really, he wasn't too vocal about his decision making, but it's certainly conceivable that Jalen Hurts conceived of his decision as being a good teammate, in which case I think it's perfectly appropriate to praise him for it. I mean, you know, good for him. Um, I think to then extrapolate it to this is why people shouldn't transfer, um, you know, no, people should do what they want. I actually did a story about this about a month ago because a surprising number of contenders this year are led by, were led by transfers um, from your Louisiana State Tigers, uh, an Ohio State transfer, Joe Burrow is the quarterback, uh, to West Virginia with Will Greer, to Michigan with Shea Patterson. You know, there are a lot of prominent transfers. So oh, Oklahoma, Kyler Oklahoma with Kyler Murray. Murray. Course, the I mean, I, needless to say, I didn't forget him when I wrote the article. I just forgot him in that brief moment. But yes, and Kyler Murray um, was a transfer, transferred from his father's alma mater of Texas A&M um, to, to play at Oklahoma. Oklahoma, um, as Baker Mayfield did. Uh, so, you know, especially at quarterback, this has become uh, much more of a trend for a variety of reasons. And actually, it's, it is especially notable, I would argue, that Jalen Hurts did not transfer because of a new rule this year, uh, which permits you to take a redshirt year despite playing in up to four games. So at Clemson, there was a similar situation. A younger quarterback, in this case a freshman named uh, Trevor Lawrence, um, kind of was in a competition with a senior, Kelly Bryant, uh, for the starting quarterback job. Um, Four games, exactly four games into the season, Dabo Swinney, Clemson's coach, announced that Lawrence, the freshman, would be the starter, and Kelly Bryant elected to transfer. And so basically Kelly Bryant, uh, you know, didn't play any more this season, and despite playing substantial snaps in Clemson's first four games, he will be able to treat this season as his redshirt year. And, uh, you know, he'll be able to transfer to wherever he can transfer to next year and play one more season of college eligibility. Uh, Jalen Hurts, you know, has not used a redshirt year. He started as a true freshman. So he theoretically could have, after four games, when it was quite apparent that Tua was the starter, he could have said, you know what, I'm taking this as my redshirt year and I'm going to transfer and go to a place where I can start, um, which probably isn't Alabama because Tua is younger than I am. And he didn't. So I don't think it's unfair to read stuff into that decision, although we don't know exactly. Maybe it's possible that Jalen Hurts wouldn't be the starter elsewhere because he kind of can only operate in a, in a unique offense. Maybe he'd be forced to change positions. We don't know. It is significant to me that he didn't transfer. I just don't think it's a broader lesson for everyone. It's it's a lesson for him. I would even go further and say that I think Herb Street's tweet is correct. I think that it is actually a good lesson to, to children. 
um, if you're not going to get it, I don't know, Mark, if you've like thought about like what is the appropriate age at which to tell your children about the NCAA, but <laughs> gather around Johnny and Sally and let me tell you about amateurism. But like if like if Herb Street's tweet literally is what an incredible example for kids out there that think leaving for greener pastures after seeing first to sign of adversity is the answer. And I think you could tell a kid like, look, you got um, – you aren't the starter on your like fifth grade team anymore, but you should still be a good teammate. And look what happened with Alabama and the guy got a, got a chance again. Like that is a really good lesson for kids. And I think the actual like real life implications of the NCAA and what it means is like actually kind of a pretty specific case in which that general rule does not apply. Right, because of what Arian Foster tweeted in response to Herb Street, which was, don't shame other kids for recognizing this system is exploiting them, and they have a small opportunity to put film out there for the next level. You're branding business decisions as character flaws. So I think to not bring up the idea and make it clear, even to your children, <laughs> that the NCAA is a harmful and exploitative and unfair cartel is wrong. And I think we need to point that out. Daddy, at what's every a cartel? Opportunity. Uh, we, we can, that's what dictionaries are for. I have a <laughs> counter, counter, counter argument. Love it. For why <laughs> Jalen Hurts may have wanted to stay at Alabama, that has nothing to do. Bring it, with bring his, it, baby. His great teammateness, which yeah. is that he didn't have to get hurt for a year. If Jalen Hurts is a good enough, that's athlete, like his brand, though. If Jalen Hurts is a good enough athlete to play in the NFL, and I really don't know if he is, and I don't know what position he would be good enough to play in the NFL, but if he is NFL caliber good, it's plausible that he is. He doesn't need to play at Alabama, right? It might be better for him to not play now this to is maximize the, his health. This is the galaxy brain take. This is, this a, is, this, that is where I am. I'm <laughs> well, not, so I'm not actually, suggesting you know that that's what they did. Because at running back, this is typical, right? Like, you know, I, yes. I, Georgia last year had like two different running backs go in the draft, I think, right? right. There was Chubb and, and someone else. I mean, at running back, you, you take one of the touches. Right, that's right. And, you know, you, you, know, you, you put plenty of tape out there. Um, you and you and you decrease your mileage, which lets teams be more comfortable drafting right, you and, and makes it more likely that you'll get to that second contract in the NFL, which is where you make the real money. And the let's problem be clear, is quarterback right? doesn't work that way. Well, but who's saying he's going to be a quarterback? But even if he well, is a right. quarterback, he's got some pretty good tape out there. He won 26 out no, of 28 this games. Is a bad, this is a horrible he's not, well, no, no, He's not a great NFL caliber quarterback, right? But Probably he not. might be. And athletically, you know, one guy got hurt on Saturday, and that was Tua. And he has to have surgery. Jalen Hurts does not have to have surgery this year. No, Jalen Hurts actually literally did have surgery this year because he hurt his ankle. He was injured. Oh, he was. uh, And he did. uh, uh, Similar kind of surgery. You know, they have uh, Dr. Andrews down there. Uh, He does does their... well, he's the ever-present Dr. Andrews without having to play again. So, well, here here's the reason that your your take is wrong. I respect the take game. It's a but take. I respect the take game. I didn't say it was right, but um, yeah. he looked really good in <clears throat> yeah. coming on in relief, and I think we kind of glossed over that a little bit. And he looked better than he did in the national championship game. He was throwing the ball mm-hmm. on the run with authority in ways the first that touchdown he, was a fantastic play in ways that he didn't consistently right, in his so first this two is years consistent with my argument because you could say that he didn't play this year he didn't get hurt this year he comes on in he absolute, did get hurt remember well, all right he did get hurt this year but he didn't play this year he comes on at absolutely the biggest moment of the season and plays really really well 
Do we need more information? He can play well. He's not a great quarterback. All right. um, (laughs) Last uh, topic in the segment is going to be Tua's interview with Tom Rinaldi on ESPN in which uh, they had this exchange. It had to do with a lot of pressure. If I don't perform well, perform the way I'm supposed to, I'm going to get it after. When you say I'm going to get it, just be clear what you mean there, Tua. Oh. Well, just know that the belt was involved and other things are involved as well. And it's almost the same with school. You know, if I don't get this this grade, I don't get this grade, I'm going to have to suffer the consequences. First, was the music playing when they did the interview? That's Tom, what I want to know. Tom Rinaldi was playing the, uh, the ukulele. <laughs> yeah, he was sitting there with his... Uh... Nice drumming the guitar there. Tom Rinaldi did not really follow up on that revelation in this interview, and that to me was problematic. His mother later said in the interview, described his father's treatment of Tua as the Bible or the belt. This is fucked up. And I know that there are corners of, uh, of our society that believe that disciplining your children by, by hitting them is okay. Yeah, this obviously came up with Adrian Peterson from the other direction with a football player beating his uh, child. But the commentary about this when, when the interview came out, I think it was like Chris Brown, smart football guy on Twitter, is like, wait a second. Did Tua just talk about did his father happen? beating him? It just came kind of out of nowhere in the middle of this piece and was unremarked upon really in the the story. And then it's just like over. It, it was right. just a very odd thing to have been mentioned matter of factly and not to have been the subject of its own right. narrative. And the father didn't shy away from it either. I was tough. He could go 15 and 15 with four touchdowns, but when he throws a pick, it's the worst game. Not, not how I aspire to be a father eventually, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, th- the thing that is also a parallel with Peterson is the idea that it quote unquote worked because Tua is now a good quarterback and I presume a good student. Oh, but people make that argument all the time. But with it, and Adrian I, I Peterson too. Fine. Well, Adrian Peterson too, that he said the reason that I discipline my children in this way is because it was done to me and look, I turned out well. Um, and so that I think is the, the error in, in logic. Well, and the, the television part of it only got worse. Awful announcing did a piece deconstructing it. And Desmond Howard on college game day said, I saw that his dad was like the Hawaiian version of Joe Jackson. There's no way Alabama's going to lose that game because out comes that belt. People on the set laughed. Not everybody, but I think. I mean, if we wanted to make this into a broader thing, right? Like there's still, you know, Desmond Howard is someone within football culture, right? Um, Tua Tagovailoa and his father are people within football culture. Um, Arguably, the three of us are not, at least in the same way, Oh, Stefan, it's actually, I'd be curious to know if you consider yourself within football culture. Um, but we're, we're seeing this differently, um, <laughs> to say the very least. Um, and, you know, I'm not trying to be morally relativist about it. I, I think that hitting children is wrong, and I don't think, you know, that makes me just culturally different. I think it's wrong. Uh, but empirically, there clearly is this culture in football in which, you know, these, this kind of discipline, this kind of uh, not just discipline in terms of hitting people, but a ter- discipline in terms of like being extremely harsh and demanding in this way is, is kind of, for, for football performance, for something as seemingly mundane as football performance uh, is seen as acceptable and even laudable. 
Mark Tracy writes about college football for the New York Times. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Almost 14 months after losing to Trinidad and Tobago and failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup Finals, the U.S. men's national soccer team finally has a new coach. He is Greg Berhalter. He's 45. He's American. He played in the Netherlands, Germany, England, and Major League Soccer and for the national team. And he's coached in Sweden and MLS until last week for the Columbus Crew. Berhalter could wind up being the answer for the American men, but for now, he's mostly the result of what our next guest, Grant Wall, called in Sports Illustrated a ham-handed process that has piled tons of unnecessary pressure on the new coach. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you? Good. Let's uh, talk first about the ham-handed process. The last coach, the ill-fated Bruce Arena, resigned three days after the Trinidad loss on October 13th, 2017. The U.S. Soccer Federation picked a new president in February. He took six months to hire a general manager, Ernie Stewart, who was charged with hiring the new coach. What the hell happened here? Why did this take so long? Well, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Uh, U.S. Soccer really dragged their feet on the process of hiring a general manager. And I know that this was an institutional change. The position of general manager was created so that a soccer expert would do the hiring of the new national team coach as opposed to the past when it was the president of the federation who typically has not been a soccer expert. So I understand that. But Once Carlos Cordero was elected president of U.S. soccer in February, it took six months before Ernie Stewart took over as GM on August 1st. He then began the process of searching for a coach, but it really seems like he only did two, maybe three formal interviews before landing on Greg Berhalter. And my sense is with Greg Berhalter is he may end up being a good choice, but he's certainly not the only choice, which is kind of what U.S. soccer has made it look like with this process. Stewart has this really bizarre philosophy that you articulated in your piece, which is, I'm only going to interview someone. He just puts like so much weight on the concept of the interview. Like, I'm only going to interview someone if essentially I believe that they are the right person for the job. He has his list. He had a list of 30-something people. He had his criteria of what he wanted a coach to be. And then he just winnowed that list down without actually speaking to any of these individuals, which if you've ever done any hiring in your life, a a lot of us have, I just have never heard of a hiring process for any position in any field that's that proceeds in that way. Neither have I. And so I'm dumbfounded by that process. Um, you know, I look at it as if you're going to be hiring for an important position, you need to gain as much information as possible to make that decision. Now, 
Ernie Stewart says he used data analytics to look into the potential coaches. And that's great. That's more information. But to not sit down and do a formal interview with, what, half a dozen, eight, ten different potential candidates. They certainly have the time. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too. We've the U.S. soccer has wasted a year. Yep. And the, maybe the one silver lining of failing to qualify for World Cup 2018 was, well, at least you can get a head start on the next four-year cycle, the new coach can. And now the U.S. finds itself behind the other countries in the world who even competed in the World Cup because this year has been wasted hiring a coach who would have taken the job a year ago, probably. And, and so that is very frustrating for U.S. soccer fans. And... It wasn't as if there was a shortage of really interesting and accomplished potential candidates here. Tata Martino, Juan Carlos Osorio, who coached in Mexico, Tab Ramos from within the U.S. Federation, uh, Yulin Lopetugi, who coached Spain for two years and contacted U.S. soccer, you reported, saying that he was interested, but the Federation told him they were too far along in their process. This is just bizarre. And I understand on the one hand, coming out of the last two coaching cycles, that that there's a, a sense of we want to retrench and get a solid American who hasn't been a retread um, in here to sort of craft that American style. I mean, I think, I think the U.S. Federation and, you know, fans probably feel burned a little bit um, for what's gone on for the last six years. Um, but that doesn't seem to really explain why you would overlook or ignore potential foreign candidates for this job. Correct. And, you know, I did report that Julian Lepetegui ex contacted U.S. soccer expressing interest in the U.S. job. This guy was unbeaten for two years with Spain, Spain, and and could not get an interview, even though he was interested uh, in my opinion, you're never too far along in a process until you announce the coach. Uh, so that's mystifying as well. Uh, other candidates inside the U.S. Uh, included Peter Vermees, uh, Bob Bradley, Jesse Marsh, uh, guys who had very good qualifications potentially for this U.S. job. Uh, they weren't interviewed either. Uh, and so you're left really scratching your head about why U.S. soccer would go through a process that basically is saying Greg Berhalter is the only serious candidate and is this is so remarkable that we're not even going to interview these other guys. And that's also a problem because uh, Jay Berhalter is uh, one of the most powerful people in U.S. soccer. His he is brother. Greg Berhalter's let's, let, yeah. brother. Let's, so this is the conflict of interest part that that also plays a role here. And U.S. soccer has taken great pains and gone into contortions to say that Jay Burhalter was not involved in the hiring process of Greg Burhalter, And that may be the case, but Jay Burhalter was deeply involved in the process of hiring Ernie Stewart, the GM who hired Greg Burhalter. And I'm not saying the fix is in here. What I am saying is, is that U.S. soccer should have been well aware that if they made it seem like Greg Burhalter was the only serious candidate here, that would look bad considering his brother is such a powerful figure inside U.S. soccer. So you said in your piece, Grant, that uh, Christian Pulisic said recently that all he wanted was a guy with a real plan that, <laughs> that shows kind of where we are with this search. And 
you know, you can say a lot of things about Craig Berhalter, but based on what I've read and what you reported, he's definitely a guy with a real plan. This is somebody who has a system that he's developed in MLS with the Columbus crew. He's known as someone who has uh, an ability to put together an organized team and to put together a team that maybe is better than the sum of its parts. And that all sounds good, right? Yeah, and potentially it could be a return to sort of what has made the U.S. men's team good when they've been pretty good. And, you know, I'm talking about 2014 World Cup, 2010 World Cup, 2002, when they were greater than the sum of their parts, when they had an identity that was recognizable, when they had players who were hard to play against. And that was the reputation of the U.S. team. And obviously you want to have some skill players too. And and I would look back at that 2002 World Cup quarterfinalist, and there were some skill players on that team like Claudio Reyna, John O'Brien, Ernie Stewart even. Um, and I think it's possible to build around Christian Pulisic, who's still just 20 years old, and several other young rising players, most of them playing the German Bundesliga for the U.S., uh, and and do some good things and restore some pride in the U.S. men's national team. So what are the top lines on what the Burhalter system is? Well, he's possession-based, and, and that is something that should be a good thing, uh, especially against CONCACAF teams. It remains to be seen if the U.S. will be able to play possession soccer against world heavyweights. That's always been a big issue for the U.S. Uh, he also has teams that if you watched his teams in Columbus, he's very much about using the full width of the field, sending the fullbacks wide downfield and really getting them involved in the attack. Uh, And he's built around kind of a number 10. uh, uh, Iguain, Federico Iguain in Columbus is that guy he's built around. And I'm curious to see how he uses Pulisic because he's been more typically a wide player, but he's capable of playing a number 10 position. So that's going to be, I think, a question for Greg Berhalter this week as he does the media rounds in New York. Uh, Where do you see Christian Pulisic? It's a really amorphous process being a national team coach in soccer. Uh, The team doesn't play together regularly. When it does get together, it's for short bursts and then games. How do you view the coach's job to craft this style and transmit it to players. What coaches on the world level of national teams are successful? Like what are their strategies for taking these players who play for different systems in different countries at different levels and integrating them for these moments to prepare for these big international events? Well, I think the most successful national team coaches, uh, players know what to expect coming in. Uh, in terms of an approach to training sessions, in terms of an approach to uh, formations in games, how the team is going to play in games. The roles of each player are well explained to them. I mean, Jurgen Klinsmann really did not ever explain the roles of a player to him. He just sort of wanted them to figure it out. And that was a huge issue with the Klinsmann era in U.S. soccer. Um, and I think Greg Berhalter is a very organized coach, and I think he'll, he, he definitely will communicate to players what is expected of them individually and as a team. And you want players to look forward to coming into the national team. And Michael Parkhurst uh, with Atlanta said this week in, a, in an interview with ESPN that it had gotten to a point where U.S. players weren't looking forward to coming in to play for the national team. And 
that's a really significant indictment of what things had become under you, uh, the U.S. soccer uh, system over the last few years. So um, there's a lot of challenges here for Greg Burhalter, but I think he's a guy who's not going to waste time uh, the very limited time that he has with his players. He understands having played for the national team in two World Cups that you only get so much time as a national team coach, and that is by far the biggest difference compared to a club coach. I see a little bit of conflict here in terms of the style questions, and I'm hoping you can help me sort it out. The first is that playing a possession-based style, as you indicated, especially going up against countries that are more talented, seems extremely aspirational, right? Especially at this stage of U.S. soccer, the notion that the U.S. is going to play against a Spain or a Germany or even an England based on the pretty terrible friendly results uh, from recently. And the U.S. is just going to hold on to the ball and be kind of able to control the game in that way against these countries. That seems like something that's down the road. On the other hand, you're hiring a coach and Burhalter, who with Columbus took a team that didn't have the most talent in MLS and that didn't spend a lot of money and that was able to make the playoffs four out of five years, make the MLS Cup final one year. And so then you could look at that and say, oh, well, maybe that there's a sense of realism there. The idea that the U.S. isn't going to have the most talent and let's get a guy who can have a team punch above its weight. Do you see there being a conflict there? And if so, how would you kind of resolve that? I think more than likely when Greg Berhalter's U.S. national team plays against the big teams in world soccer, you're not going to see a ton of possession. I I think Jurgen Klinsmann had this pie-in-the-sky view that the U.S. would play that way. I do think Berhalter will be more pragmatic uh, and you're only as good as your your players are, right? And so, you know, you have a guy like Polisic, who's definitely uh, a really talented, creative player to build around, uh, and you have some some exciting young players coming up, but uh, they're not in a position. You know, a lot of these guys played against England recently and couldn't do much of anything in that game uh, against an England B team. And so this is going to be a long process. And national team coaches, in my opinion, they aren't responsible for the skills of their players. They just see these guys every once in a while. Their, it, their job is to put together the best possible team with the parts that they have. And I, and I do think Greg Berhalter will try and maximize that. I do think the U.S. will return to some of the identity that uh, has made them good when they have been good. But I look back at that 2002 team that Burhalter was on for the U.S. at that World Cup, and they actually played some good soccer. If you remember that, that game against Portugal, the 3-2 win that really got things going for the U.S. in that tournament, there were some well-constructed goals by the U.S. in that game and in other games in that tournament. And so uh, that may come with having a few skilled players in the right positions, but also having the confidence that comes from uh, being really well organized that you can actually create something out of that too. Yeah, that's going to be 20 years ago <laughs> when we hit the next World Cup, Grant. So the fact that we're still talking about that now as the moments of great U.S. soccer is a little sad. There have been some good times in between, though. Grant Wall covers soccer for Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports and is the author of Masters of Modern Soccer, How the World's Best Play the 21st Century Game. Grant, thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, big world record set over the weekend in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Okay. The teddy bear toss. Okay. Hershey Bears ice hockey team, affiliate of the Washington Capitals, the Stanley Cup champion, Washington Capitals. They beat the record formerly held by the Calgary Hitmen of 28,815 teddy bears thrown onto the ice during a game 34,798. Let's listen to the scene in Hershey. The Bears will look to tie it as Binghamton has the lead, but a Funks restaurant power play for Hershey. Manga the point for Nash. Left wing side, Scarbosa snaps a shot, hit the crossbar, rebound, Barber, he scores! It's Teddy Bear toss time! Riley Barber scores the goal! And the fans are letting them fly! It's raining stuffed animals in Chocolate Town! It's raining stuffed animals in chocolate. That's a great call. That sounds like a good euphemism for, for something. something really gross. <laughs> Did you know the teddy bear toss was a thing? I did know that it was a thing, yes. I didn't really know it was a thing. Yeah. It started in 1993, according to uh, the teddy bear toss wiki page. What was it? Raining teddy bears in chocolate, chocolate town? town? Yeah. Yeah. The Kamloops Oof. Blazers. I had, I had something that didn't uh, agree with me last night. It's raining teddy bears in chocolate town. Kamloops Blazers started at marketing genius Don Larson in 1993. It's for charity. Love charity. Uh, Stefan, what is your teddy bear toss? Well, last week in Mauritius, the Intergovernmental Committee for the Safeguarding of the Intangible Cultural Heritage of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, inscribed, its word, 31 elements its word, on its representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. The list consists of a range of arts and traditions and other cultural activities that UNESCO feels are worthy of recognizing and preserving against the march of time. This year's additions included the picking of Eva grass on Ozren Mountain in Bosnia and Herzegovina. That takes place on September 11th, which is, of course, the day of the beheading of St. John the Baptist. Reggae music of Jamaica, the traditional spring festive rites of the Kazakh horse breeders, traditional string puppet drama of Sri Lanka, the Muba dance of the Lenje ethnic group of central province in Zambia, and avalanche risk management in Switzerland and Austria. But there are sports on the list, too. So a big UNESCO welcome to hurling the cool Irish sport that's like field hockey, but you hit the ball in the air with a stick. From the two Koreas, we've got some wrestling. Sisirum in the north, in which, quote, two opponents try to push each other to the ground using a satpa, a fabric strap connecting the waist and leg, their torso, hands, and legs. Winner gets a bull. And the slightly but critically different Sisirium from the south in which two players wearing long fabric belts around their waists and one thigh grip their opponent's belt and deploy various techniques to send them to the ground. The winner there gets an ox. Big difference. More traditional wrestling from Georgia, the country, not the state, called Chidoba. 
It's got some brightly colored vests around 200 different holds and counter holds. The practice encourages a healthy lifestyle and plays an important role in intercultural dialogue, UNESCO says. I watched the 10-minute video for Chidoba. I learned that Chidoba has elements of judo. It's common at feasts. It bridges ethnic and religious rivalries. One coach notes in the video that because wrestling stops when one wrestler's knee touches the ground, Chidoba has a chivalrous essence. As the ancestors used to say, Josh, even a dog won't bite a man who has fallen down. I would dispute that because I think a dog would bite a man that's fallen down. So I kept looking for my favorite UNESCO-sanctioned, intangible, cultural, heritage-worthy sport. Good point. 2017 was kind of a dud year for sports. 2016 added Tatid, an Indian martial art that's like choreographed stick fighting. Not enough competition for me. 2015, including some tugging rituals and games from Southeast Asia, but again, quote, intentionally uncompetitive to promote the well-being of the community, blah, blah, blah. But I hit pay dirt in 2014. Mongolian knucklebone shooting. I'm going to read from the UNESCO description now. Teams of six to eight players flick 30 domino-like marble tablets on a smooth wooden surface toward a target of sheep knuckle bones, aiming to knock them into a target zone while shooters sing traditional knuckle bone shooting melodies and songs. Mongolian knuckle bone shooting is awesome. The playing pieces are literally made from the knuckle bones, as you might have guessed, of sheep and goats and deer horns. Some ankle bones are involved too. You flick from a distance of nine elbows or 4.72 meters. There are tournaments, up to 600 knuckle bone shooters. There's a national finals in the central stadium in the capital, Ulaanbaatar. And there's some excellent knuckle bone equipment, handcrafted, the shooting target, the shooting domino, the shooting rack, a special chair, and this. And ninth is Havchar Hai, which is designed for the elderly shooters to enhance their sight and accuracy, as well as increase the power or the force applied to the shooting. I love that the olds get a special shooter. It looks like a bow and arrow mechanism kind of thing. But what's really awesome about Mongolian knuckle bone shooting is, as you may have just deduced, the singing and chanting. There are different songs for different techniques and different parts of the game. Lyrics include lines like, hail your friend hits the target, which seems much better than na 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 na, hey, 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 goodbye, or we will rock you, or defense, or Boston sucks. Well, maybe not Boston sucks. Anyway, here's one more clip. Listen for the flick, the knuckle bones toppling, and the sheer joy and respect for the shooter. Mongolian knuckle bone shooting. It's knuckle bone-tastic. Josh, what's your teddy bear toss? Uh, <laughs> I would like to hear the Hank Williams Jr. version of the <laughs> Monday Night Knucklebone shooting. Knuckle shooting. Yeah. Yeah. 
all my etc. Okay, uh, quarterback play in the NFL this year is good, but what this afterball presupposes is, what if it was bad? Some of it's bad. True, but what if it was really bad? Okay. Chase Stewart of the website Football Perspective wrote a post over the summer in which he identified the worst passing seasons in NFL history. The winner, meaning the biggest loser, was the 1943 performance by one Ronnie Cahill. That year, Cahill threw three touchdowns and 21 interceptions for the Chicago Cardinals. Cahill was a high school legend in central Massachusetts, which I think a lot of people overlook when they talk about Ronnie Cahill's football uh, career. You can't forget the fact that he led uh, Liminster to an undefeated year in 1932, in which they outscored their opponents 442 to 31. He also led Holy Cross to a 23-3-2 record, and he completed his first 11 passes in leading a college all-star team over the New York Giants in 1940, back when they- They should really bring that game back. They used to do those sort of of things. So uh, 1943, during World War II, he was a replacement for the Cardinals' starting quarterback, a guy named Bud Schwenk, who was uh, a solid signal caller. Uh, Cahill's NFL career, not that good. Decidedly less spectacular than these Schwenk years. In an article posted on the website profootballresearchers.org, Mark Speck wrote that Cahill's 1943 Chicago Cardinals were one of the dozen worst teams in league history. Head coach Jimmy Konzelman left to take care of his baseball duties. And the woeful cards had replacement Phil Handler wishing he had taken up another sport. At times in 1943, it seemed some of the cards were playing something other than football. Chicago was hit hard by the war as both their top passer and receiver marched off to the front. Rookie quarterback Ronnie Cahill tossed a league-high 21 interceptions. The defense gave up 238 points, most of the NFL, while the offense scored only 95. The Cardinals almost won a game. They uh, lost 13-7 to to Washington. And according to this article, Chicago had so many problems, they had to merge with Pittsburgh in 1944. Team so bad, it ceased to exist. They also lost all of their games in 1944. The interesting thing that I discovered in doing a little bit of research on Cahill was that as of October 7th, 1943, he was leading the league in completion percentage. It wasn't a very good completion percentage, but it wasn't uh, very easy to pass the ball back in those days. 19 of 36 for a 528 percentage. Uh, but then a newspaper in his home state of Massachusetts in the town of Pittsfield reported as of December – Two months later, Cahill had gone to the hospital and may have pneumonia. He was run down physically and in need of a rest. Uh, A few months after that, in March 1944, Cahill was working at a war plant in his hometown of Leminster. He was called up to the army the next month. There isn't that much written about this guy on the internet. I did find a piece in the Sentinel and Enterprise newspaper published in uh, Fitchburg, Massachusetts, in which a local historian noted that Cahill, he died in 1992 and that he was, quote, not one to toot his own horn, perhaps for understandable reasons. He was kind of nonchalant with what he had accomplished. He was never one to fill in all the details when talking about what he had done. Three touchdowns and nothing else. That's pretty much all you need to know about Ronnie Cahill and the 1943 Chicago football Cardinals. That is our show for today. 
Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. We would also love your calls for our call-in show, 77-HANG-UP-10, 77-HANG-UP-10. Give us a call. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.